Children need to be taught to speak, whether it's in one language or maybe seven. Take a look at this. How are you? My name is Eli. What's your name? My name is Bella. Wow, Bella, you're very beautiful today. Are you looking for something? Yes. What are you looking for? I'm looking for my present. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I'll tell you what. If you pass a little test, we can help you find your present, okay? Okay. So, so over here, we're going to have a question for you. Can you read the question what? and then answer? Dinosaur has two rows of bony plates that run along its back and tail. Okay, so which dinosaur is it? Stegosaurus. That's correct. Wonderful job, Bella. Wow. Te voy a ayudar solo si tú me cantas una canción. ¿Te sabes alguna canción? Sí. Cántala entonces. Maripostita está en la cocina haciendo chocolate para la madrina. Poti, poti, pata de palo, ojo de vino y nariz de pagama. Cho, 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 cho. ¿Spielst tú conmigo? Etwas, was du nicht siehst? Hm. Und das sieht grün aus. Die Buchstabe O. Richtig. Sehr gut, Bella. Das war sehr gut. Machst du mir einen Knicksen? Also, hier ist ein Text, der sich Tu vas devoir le lire. Ça va? Petit oiseau d'or et d'argent, ta mère t'appelle au bout du champ pour y manger du lait caillé que les souris ont barboté pendant une heure de temps. Va-t'en! Très bien! Hassan, le question premier est à quel endroit tu vis? Je vis à l'endroit où il y a le ciel. قولي لي ماذا يوجد في منتصف في مركز المجموعة الشمسية؟ الشمس ممتاز أنت ذكية جدا كردينا ما كنت تعرف مكان الهدية أها حسنا هيا أعطيني يدك والآن سوف نبحث عن الهدية أختي كاكاية كرساتا На самом деле, чтобы вы понимали, это хвост не случайность. Это была мечта Беллы. Вопрос один. Как? Мы занимаемся за языками с рождения. Начали только с двух языков, с русского и английского. Но поскольку увидели интерес у ребенка, то мы постепенно-постепенно добавляли все новые-новые языки. И постепенно вот так пришли к семи языкам. Anyone in here speaks seven languages? Anyone? There are some who can. Uh, I think we have a little bit of work to do. Um, children need to be taught how to speak. 
whether it's one language or seven languages, uh, we all need to be taught at some point on how to speak. And for toddlers, healthy speech is not automatic. Is there any parent in the room who has never had to remind your child to say please or thank you? <laughs> right? There's nothing more sweet than to have your child unprompted say, I love you, mommy and daddy. Thank you, mommy and daddy. I love you. I'm sorry. Please, thank you, help. Words like these are the building blocks to a healthy relationship. And when these aren't being used in communication, then that relationship begins to fail. Faithful speech is also critically important to the Christian life. God's not simply interested in being a far-off God. He wants to be intimately acquainted with us. One of the greatest uh, biblical metaphors that we see is that of the church being married to God. And for anyone who's been married, you understand that healthy communication is vitally important. For those who haven't been married can understand that healthy communication among other people is vitally important. And the book of Psalms, the songbook of the Bible, each one of these songs faithfully express some essential communicational habit that we would be wise to learn. One of the ways we learn good communication habits with God is by participating in public worship. That's what we're doing here this morning. When we gather for worship, we are invited to join together to say to God, we love you. We're sorry. We're listening. Help. I will serve you. The challenge is that on any given Sunday... Look around the room like Angel had us do. There are a lot of people here who are coming with different things to say to God. Some may come to church ready to tell God, thank you. Others want to cry out, why? Others are ready to say, I'm sorry. Although I think that's probably something we should all be ready to say each and every Sunday. To say it another way, some of us come ready to sing Psalm 100. Others, Psalm 13. And all of us, if we're honest, need to speak Psalm 51. Our gatherings of worship help each of us express our particular experiences but also help us to practice forms of speech that we're still growing into. This is one reason public corporate worship is so important. It challenges us to practice forms of faithful speech to God that we might not likely try on our own. Authentic worship, like toddler talk, expresses who we are and forms what we are becoming. This is one of the reasons I'm really excited that we're going through this series on the book of Psalms. The biblical Psalms are the foundational mentor and guide in the vocabulary and grammar for worship. 
Last week, Pastor Pat started us off right at the very beginning. The first song in the songbook, Psalm 1. This morning, we're going to jump over to Psalm 84. This is one of my favorite psalms because it has a deep longing for the presence of God. Before we get started, let's pray. Father, as a psalmist will say, as we will look at this morning, we long to be in your presence. Lord, so this morning, help us to see who you are in right ways. Help us to speak in faithful ways as we continue through this worship service, as we've done in song, as we do in prayer, through scripture reading, through this time of listening to your word. Lord, may you be honored and glorified by what is done, all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's turn, if you haven't already, to Psalm 84, uh, either electronically or a paper Bible. If you're using the pew rack, it's page 602. And one of the things that we see right at the beginning of Psalm 84, right below the title of this song, says, to the choir master, according to the gittif, which would be a stringed musical instrument, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Now, we're not exactly sure who the author of this psalm is. Most people think that it was David, although we know that David didn't write every psalm in the songbook. Uh, but what we do know is that he is writing it on behalf of the sons of Korah. He wants them either to perform it in worship at the temple, or he is thinking of them as he is writing this psalm. So I, I like to know some history about who writes particular uh, works or what they're being written about. So let me tell you a little bit about the sons of Korah. The story of the sons of Korah in the Old Testament begins with the Israelites of Moses' time as they journeyed throughout the wilderness shortly after the Exodus. In Numbers 3, the Bible book of Numbers, chapter 3, God set aside the Levites out of the tribe of Israel. These were, um, for lack of a better word, the worship leaders, per se. They were priests for the temple and the tabernacle. And they were set aside for full-time service to the Lord. They were ordained to take care of the tabernacle and all of its implements, which included the Ark of the Covenant. Now, let's look at some genealogy just real quick, a broad stroke overview to figure out where the Levites came from. Uh, I think most people know who Abraham is in the Bible. It's, he occurs uh, really early on in the story, the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. And so Abraham had a son, and he named him Isaac. Isaac had two sons, one of which was Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Probably the most popular of all of Jacob's sons is Joseph, uh, with the multicolored robe, right? We have some music about him, I think. And the third son from Jacob was named Levi. This is where we get the name Levites from. They were the descendants of Levi, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham. And Levi had three sons, Gershon, 
Merari, and Koath. The descendants of Gershon, well, let me say this before. These three were the descendants of Levi who were put in charge of the tabernacle. So the descendants of Gershon, the Gershonites, were responsible for the care of the tabernacle and the tent. So in other words, the coverings. Uh, They were in charge of the curtains that led in from the outer court uh, into the holy place, um, the actual tent that went over them, as well as some of the ropes that held things together. So those were the Gershonites. The Merarites were appointed to take care of the frames of the tabernacle. So think of the poles of a tent. So the, Gersh, uh, the Merarites were in charge of the poles that the, Mer- the Gershonites would put the tent on. Now these poles, we're not talking you know, a little four-man tent that you go camping with. The tabernacle was a pretty good size. So there's a lot of poles and they were in charge of the bases and the tent pegs and the ropes and all of that stuff. Then the Kohathites were responsible for the care of what's called the sanctuary. Uh, in simple terms, they were in charge of all the furniture pieces that went into the tabernacle. So they were in charge of the Ark of the Covenant, the table for the bread, the lampstand, or what's called the menorah now, Uh, some of the altars that were around. Now, remember that the tabernacle was portable during this time because they were moving around throughout the wilderness. So, the Gershonites and the Merarites were allowed to transport their items, the tent and the poles, on carts. Easy enough. Uh, When it was time to move on, The Gershonites would take the tent pieces, fold them up, put them on a cart, and off you went. The Merarites gather all the poles and the bases and the tent pegs, put it on a cart, and they're off. The Kohathites, on the other hand, had to carry all of their items, all those holy pieces of the tabernacle, and they had to carry them on their shoulders. Moreover, they were not allowed to actually touch the items or they would die. So they had to wrap the sacred objects in special coverings before they were transported. So I guess you could say that this was a much more intense task than what the other two families had. Uh, It was definitely more laborsome. And because of this, some of the Kohathites began to disdain the task and to covet the roles of the other priests. Korah was the grandson of Koath, and he began to hang out with a group who were frustrated at the way things were established. In their pride, they gathered a group of 250 men together to challenge the authority of Moses and Aaron. Now, whose authority were they really challenging? God, that's right, because God's the one who established it to be this way. And then a little side note here, uh, Moses and Aaron and Korah are cousins. So there's a little family dynamic there too. Moses summoned the rebellious men to stand before God and to burn incense God warned Moses to let everyone else know to get away from Korah and the other rebels and the 250 people that had followed them. 
Now, anytime God says, I want you all to come over here, the rest of you get back. It's not a good sign, okay? <laughs> then it happened. Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. In other words, if nothing here happens and these guys grow old and just die naturally, then you know that, you know, the Lord did not send me. You know, I'm not a spokesperson for him. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. So if they die naturally, but if the ground opens up and swallows them, then you know they've upset the Lord. As soon as he finished saying this, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korah together with all of their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. Now, if you were outside of those 250 plus men, what would your response be? At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Maybe we should follow what God sets up. I don't know. Now, although this clearly marked the end of Korah, <laughs> We are told that Korah's sons, perhaps too young to understand their father's uprising, or maybe too cognizant to go against God and his authority, they were spared. God judged those who turned against him in act of rebellion, but he still had a purpose and a plan for the line of Korah. Now, fast forward, after seven successive generations, the prophet Samuel arises out of the line of Korah. The prophet Samuel is the one who anoints David as king. Does God have a plan? Yes, absolutely. The Korah, Korahites became doorkeepers and custodians for the tabernacle. God's plan was to still have them involved in leading worship for his church. One group of Korahites even joined King David in military exploits and won the reputation of being expert warriors, especially with the bow and sling. Does that sound familiar? Sling? Bow? However, the most remarkable thing to note about the sons of Korah is that during the time of King David, they became the great leaders in choral and instrumental music. They played an important role in Thanksgiving services and pageantry that happened when the Ark of the Covenant was brought back to Jerusalem. David formed an elaborate organization for song and instrumental song and prophesying through these men. That's who the sons of Korah are. So let's take a look at Psalm 84, 
written in light of the worship leading of the sons of Korah. There seems to be three parts to Psalm 84. The first part begins with longing for God. Verses 1 through 4 seem to have this longing aspect, longing for God. And when we think about the sons of Korah's past, um, you know, it, it, it's really neat to see how maybe they're remembering all the things that have happened in their past. Verse 1, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Now the word soul here is a Hebrew term for the innermost being. So for the psalmist, deep down inside, at the very depths of his soul, the very depths of his being, even his heart and his flesh cry out to be able to spend time with God. And the Hebrew word for longs here has the picture of a child who cries out when it's hungry. If you've ever parented a child or if you've ever babysat a baby, a child, when they cry because they're hungry, is there anything else you can do to distract them other than to give them food? No. I mean, you can try all these things, but they're still going to cry until they get that nourishment that they want. That's the image here. My soul longs. My soul cries out like a child, like a baby who is hungry. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at, some say, near your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. The psalmist here is jealous of the birds. The birds who get to build their nests in God's presence near his altars. You know, there was a custom among several nations at this time that the psalm was written to allow birds to build their nests in and around the temple, which is really intriguing to me because one of the main things that was happening at the temple was the burning offerings to the Lord. And what were some of the things that the priests would burn as an offering to the Lord? Well, the lamb, of course, which is eventually why Jesus called himself the lamb of God because he was the sacrifice you know, for us. But what else? Birds. So if we look back, and you can turn there if you'd like, the third book of the Bible in Leviticus, chapter 12. Uh, it's really interesting here. This is the law that God gave to Moses. And this is talking specifically about uh, a woman being purified after giving birth to a baby. But it says, in, starting in verse 6 of chapter 12 of Leviticus, And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he, the priest, shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. 
Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. So there's two offerings that will happen here, a burnt offering and a sin offering. Now, the burnt offering, for the most part, was a voluntary act of worship to express devotion or commitment to God, saying, I am committed to you, Lord. It was also used often for atonement for unintentional sins. You know, sins that maybe occurred, but you weren't purposefully going out to do this sin. The sin offering, however, was a mandatory atonement for specific sins. A confession of sin, the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing from defilement. And so we see here, according to the law of Moses, given by God, that a woman was to bring a year-old lamb for the burnt offering and a bird for the sin offering. Now, just because we're here, and this is a total side note, has nothing to do with Psalm 84, but I just love how God does this. Verse 8, Leviticus 12. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she will take two turtle doves or two pigeons. So maybe they're poor, and they can't afford to purchase a lamb or don't have a lamb. Well, take two birds. That would be okay. And then we look over real quick. See, here's the side note. Sometimes I do this. My students love it. Luke 2. Look at Mary and Joseph after they've had Jesus, and they bring him to the temple after their time of purification. Uh, Luke 2, verse 22. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. That's what we just read in Leviticus, right? This is what Mary and Joseph offer. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. What does that tell us about Mary and Joseph? They're poor. Isn't that cool? Okay, back to Psalm 84. All right. So what does that say about us here? Um, You know, we have birds who are building their nests next to the altars in the temple. We see that altars were there for sacrifice of these animals. And how beautiful of an image that God creates for us. Because what are nests for? to lay eggs, and the eggs bring new life right next to an altar that's there for death. But the altar is there for a commitment to God and the forgiveness of sins. And as we come before the Lord and ask him to forgive our sins, he brings new life to us. That's what it means for us. Romans 12, 1 Right, that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And this is our act of worship to God. I have a professor who loves to say, everyone knows that a living sacrifice tends to crawl off the altar. It's a continual offering of ourselves to the Lord, committing ourselves to God. And so the psalmist here is jealous of even the birds who get to be in God's presence in the temple, in the house of the Lord. And these birds right next to an altar that's offered a sacrifice.
Verse four, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Psalmist seems to think here if the birds can dwell with God, what if I could dwell with God? What if I could dwell in God's house with him? If God allows a sparrow to dwell in his house, how much more his servant, his child? When he says, blessed are those who dwell in your house, he's thinking of the priests, the temple officials, those who are called to serve the Lord each and every day in a full-time capacity. And in our day, we would call that pastors, right? But the beauty of Christ's sacrifice is that all who trust in the name of the Lord are priests. We're called the priesthood of believers in 1 Peter 2. And as priests, we've been invited into God's presence. And our natural response is praise and worship. Yesterday, there was a memorial service right here in this room. Uh, a memorial service for a wonderful man of God, a missionary. And rightfully so, it was mentioned time and again how Brian is now in the presence of his Savior. But you know what Scripture tells us? For those of us who know Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we get to be in the presence of our Savior. Now, I know it's different than what Brian's experiencing right now, but so often we think of God as a far-off God. And that's not at all who he wants to be in our lives. He's present, working in and through us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And just as Jesus taught us to pray, we can have pieces of heaven here on earth right now. And that's through our worship. We long to experience heaven on earth. But in order to, order to experience this longing, we have to travel toward God. And that's what we see here in the second section of Psalm 84, verses 5 through 9. Traveling to God. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways set to Zion. In other words, blessed is the man who gets his fulfillment and gets rejuvenated when he worships God. Blessed is the woman whose highlight of the week is when she gets to worship God. Blessed is the man who is gratified and satisfied by God rather than by something else. Verse 6, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. Now, biblical scholars aren't exactly sure where the valley of Baca is, where it's located, or even what its significance is. In fact, one commentator states that this is one of the most difficult verses in the book of Psalms. So I want to pa uh, thank Pat for having me preach this sermon with the most difficult verse. Wait, I picked it. That's right. Oh, man. Okay. Well, some say this valley of Baca is also called the valley of weeping or the valley of lamentation. Now, Israel is a very arid land. It's very dry. And so... Some may say that the Israelites, as they journeyed to Jerusalem, would sing these songs 
And it would bring tears to their eyes as they thought of going to the temple in Jerusalem to worship. The baca is a type of mulberry tree. And it's easily recognizable because the stems of the baca tree actually have moisture on them, little droplets that come down. So then some say that the valley of Baca make it a place of springs comes from the droplets of the stems. But probably the most applicable description can be considered metaphorically. Just as the rain provides water to a dry and arid land like Israel, so God provides refreshment when our lives are dry. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. When life is difficult, God will send help. Verse 7. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God and Zion. The road of life is hard. The Christian life is harder still. Things do not necessarily become easier when you become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I think that's why so many Christians fall from the race. They burn out. They get too weary of the battle. They fall by the wayside. And it's tragic when that happens. But I believe that it all could have been avoided if they would just do what the psalmist mentions here. Most Christians who fall away do so because they failed to go from strength to strength. They failed to stop at the rest stops to fill up their tanks. They failed to stop and get refreshment for the journey. And if you take the Christian life one day at a time, one step at a time, go from one answered prayer to another, from one time of Sunday fellowship to another, from one blessing of God to another, one good Christian friend to another, one prayer partner to another, when you go from strength to strength, one day you will look back at your life and be in awe of how far you've actually come. The ultimate des- destination here as we travel to God is to appear before God in Zion. As they traveled, they kept their eyes fixed on the goal, worshiping God in the temple at Zion. We too, as we journey through life, must keep our eyes on the goal. The New Testament tells us to focus our eyes on Jesus and to have the eternal perspective where we know that this world is not our home and that everything we do should be done in light of eternity. Psalm 84, 8 and 9 conclude this section of the psalm with a prayer to God for this to happen. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. There's richness here in this short little prayer. And this prayer can instruct us on how we journey. When we journey along, we will eventually reach the presence of God. And it's this presence of God that we read about in the next three verses. This is my favorite part of the chapter. Because it tells us how great it is to be where God is. There's nothing like it in the entire universe. 
This next section shows us how to be in the presence of God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The sons of Korah were doorkeepers. Maybe you could say they were custodians. Here the psalmist is saying that being away from the place of corporate worship is not worth anything else in the world. And he would give up anything to have maybe even the lowest position in the house of God. As Charles Spurgeon, a great English preacher, puts it, he says, the lowest station in connection with the Lord's house is better than the highest position among the godless. God's worst is better than the devil's best. Verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. This is the only time in the Bible where God is directly referred to as a son. There are references in Malachi and in Luke and some other passages, of course, that talk about you know, light of the world. But this is the only reference of God being directly called the son. And this is a metaphor about that traveling idea. Because remember, the people of Israel traveling in the wilderness, they did not have flashlights. They were not traveling in cars with headlights. And when it got dark, they had to stop. And they would huddle together to try to keep warm. And they would hear the wolves howling in the background. I don't know if there were actually wolves there, but you you get the idea. And they'd wait for the sun to come up. And when the sun would come up, ah, we made it through the night. It's time to get going again. It's time to get a little bit closer to Mount Zion where we get to worship God together. The sun gives light and nourishes life, but the shield gives protection from enemies. Without the shield, we would be vulnerable to all sorts of dangers on our pilgrimage to heaven. The sun and the shield balance each other. With the sun only, a band of pilgrims would be more conspicuous to their enemies. So God also is a shield for them, keeping them safe to their journey's end. The Lord gives favor and honor. We receive God's grace at salvation, but we also need his grace daily in order to walk with him. God's abundant grace in Christ motivates us to serve him. And then the promise of God not withholding any good thing is for those who walk uprightly. To walk uprightly is to live before God with integrity. It does not imply perfection, but it does mean that you walk openly before God, confessing your sin. You trust in his grace and strength to overcome sin. You seek to please God by obeying his commandments, and to such people, the Lord says he will not withhold any good thing. Psalm closes with a summary thought. Psalm 84, 12. O Lord of hosts, 
Blessed is the one who trusts in you. His blessing, this good thing that he will not withhold, is for those who trust in him. And this is the truth of all that we have seen throughout this entire chapter. There's a great blessing in store for the person who trusts God, the person who puts their hope in God. And when we look at other psalms, there are 11 psalms in the songbook that are attributed to the sons of Korah. Nearly every single one, including Psalm 42, which we sang earlier, as the deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for the living God. There is a sense of hope And you have to wonder if maybe these sons of Korah, these descendants of Korah, would remember what happened to their great, 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 great grandfather. And they see the grace of God that was over their lives. And they have hope that the future will continue that, that grace from God. And they put their full trust in God, and we can learn something from them to put our trust in God. When we place our trust and our hope in God, we will eventually get to where God is. When we get there, we get the greatest blessing of all. It's better to spend one day near God than a thousand elsewhere. In his presence is joy and peace, light and protection, grace and glory, and every good thing. The writer of this psalm loved to worship God and knew that there was no greater thing that we can do. When God is worshiped correctly, there's no greater joy, no greater thrill, no greater satisfaction. Worshiping God is what we were made for, and this is how we will spend eternity in heaven. So the question is, do you want a little taste of heaven here on earth? Well, if so, do what the psalmist says here. First, you need to long for it. Cry out for it and pray for it. Tell God you want him more than anything else, that you want to be near him and be with him. And secondly, you have to travel to it. There were discomforts on the road to Jerusalem for this psalmist. It was not an easy road, but he made the necessary adjustments in life because he knew that the cost was worth it. If he wanted it bad enough, he was willing to travel the distance to get it. And if you do these two things, long for God, travel to God, then the psalm tells us that there is nothing greater than being in the presence of God. Nothing this earth has to offer can compare with the sweetness and pleasure of the presence of God. In the year 1714, Matthew Henry, the well-known pastor and Bible commentator, was on his deathbed at the age of 52. He was relatively young. He had not yet finished his commentary. Uh, Others would finish it from his notes. He had endured the loss of his first wife and three of his nine children. He could have complained about his hard life, but he said to a friend, you have been used to take notice of the sayings of dying men. Well, here is mine that a life spent in the service of God and communion with him is the most comfortable and pleasant life that one can live in the present world. Don't believe Satan's lie that following God is not worth it. Following the Lord is the most blessed life possible. 
The many pleasures that the Lord gives to satisfy your soul should fuel your desire to be in his presence, both individually and when we gather together to worship him. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful, God, that you would even desire for us to have a relationship with you. And I thank you, God, that each and every day, as we pay attention closer and closer to you, we can feel you drawing us near, you calling us to yourself. Lord, help our minds and our hearts to be open to that. Continually remind us, Lord, that we have a thirst that only you can quench, that we have a hunger that only you can fill. Lord, that only you can satisfy. Lord, help us to, to hunger and thirst to be in your presence. Help us to realize that there's no better place to be. And help us to do it all in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.